It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Imprint Companion, the only podcast on the Australian interwebs that continues to stoke the fire that is dwindling down into embers of DVD culture. I am one half of the show, one half of the best friend heart that you split <laughs> apart and you wear on one necklace and your best friend on the other side wears that other necklace, Blake Howard. The person who is staring at my half a heart, half a beating heart of Australian DVD culture that's dwindling, oh. whose fire we are stoking, is the legendary Alexa Toliopoulos. Sir, welcome back to another Imprint Companion. Hello, honeys. I cannot wait to start <laughs> talking about those discs. And we've got a oh. hell of a box set to talk about today, Blakey. Hell of a box set. And look, when you want to talk Hammer and you want to talk box sets, you want to talk about... Four gothic horror films coming in this glorious mm-hmm. impint ham horror box set. Again, they're hard box covers. Oh. We've talked about this for for many imprint companions. Yeah. We've talked about it on our companion show to the imprint companion, a serious disagreement. But I love a hard box, I really do. Absolutely. And they, they all, and they always go out and also really cool on the hard boxes. Always the spine numbers. Yes. We're talking spines 50, 51, 52, and fifty three. Films, like, this is how loaded you are when you're a studio, when it's like, we're going to pick four films that they produced between 1971 and 72. Yeah. They'll make, like, six films a year. Six films a year, this little tiny studio in England. But period horror films we are covering today, Countess Dracula, Hands of the Ripper, and what are you covering, my friend? Because I took this half Mm -hmm. of this box, we snapped it in half. We snapped it. uh, To cover... We he snapped it in half to this week. King Solomon covering? split it in half, and we're like, actually, that's quite manageable for a big month from Imprint this week. We're not gonna be, we're not gonna argue to keep it all together. No, we're good. Um, I picked out Twins of Evil and Vampire Circus. There's also an entire bonus documentary feature-length film in here, uh, which we will be discussing as well, which is called Flesh and Blood: The Hammer Heritage of Horror. Yeah, and look, if you can have any documentary that is voice narrated in sort of wistful reflection by Peter Cushing uh-huh. and Christopher Lee, your documentary completely freaking rips. And uh, so can't wait to talk to you about that. But so, I mean, this just let's just talk about the July now, like cusp mm-hmm. of August imprint release again. We've already covered one episode with four real banger of releases um, that we, we've covered off already. So they were Brotherhood of Satan, Haunted, The Awakening, and then, of course, the Stone Cold classic Dead Zone, which uh, is a new favorite of mine, but it had been an enduring favorite of yours. Yeah. We, we rip in, we go back in time. We, get, we feel like these episodes, we're going to continue to go back mm. in time because we've done those four first. We're picking up with Hammer Horror in the middle and then we're tackling six silver screen cinema, like thriller, twisty, horror classics from like 
the the pre nineteen fifties mm. era. Even hard to say classics. I would say they're they're unheard of films. They're in that B movie category that yes. are well due for exploration and well due for like a big gourmet box set in that boutique <laughs> style that imprint does so well. And while we're in the gray matter area, before we dive in deep, I want to touch on something that you hit up earlier about this. I reckon, I got to say, the imprint box sets, the construction of them physically, mm. as someone that has spent probably upwards of $6,000 uh, on box sets, <laughs> maybe even ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 of box sets of it's my entire lifetime. Um imprint second to none when it comes to like your basic box set construction because there's nothing loose it's all contained in the one box it is effectively very easy to open and easy to get things out you're not like prying your hands in and like pulling things apart it's just simple it's beautifully done i love the gloss on them and they've i love the distinctness of those boxes with like those little almost like a little jigsaw piece where it connects together at the top (laughs) when you pull the lid off and this is something while we're in a transi- transition phase and it happened with DVD to Blu-ray big time and it's especially happening now with Blu-ray to UHD is, and we've been blessed really talking a lot about the imprint stuff, but there are great actual covers, cases, mm. etc. And, you know, if we ever have that opportunity again where imprint starts to, you know, dabble into the ultra high definition, they decide to re-release any of their films. If they're any of the ones that are in the box set, the beauty of it is the individualized mm. case is in that, that you can just pick it up yeah. and swap it out. Like yeah. if you want to keep the blue, you keep it. If you don't, you don't. I know that storage for some of our physical media fans is a oh premium. My God, that's my problem these days. Yeah. Let me tell you that. Yeah. I'm also in the process of about to move freaking house. So I'm, you uh, know, I've decided like no more physical media for a minute. <laughs> Yeah, for one minute until next month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> until next month. But no, so that's one thing I actually really do like because I know that you and I have done this before. You know, you get big, beautiful box sets. There was a, a really terrific James Bond box set that came out when mm. they all came out on Blu-ray. It was finally an inter-studio collab. Yes. And it and it even had a free slot for, at that time, the latest James Bond film that had not been released on Blu-ray yet, which was Skyfall. Mm-hmm. But as you know... There's more movies. Then yeah. there's Spectre. Then there's No Time to Die. And you're looking up at this box set going, there's no additional slots. There's no like yeah. next box set that's going to sit nicely on the shelf next to it. It's like, there'll be another one that'll be the ultra high definition James Bond set. And then I'll be buying that. So it's just one of those things where it's it's ongoing. But I do like yeah. what imprints Do you know what there. I've been doing? This is actually, this is a hot tip oh. for physical media collectors. Uh, I have in. a very big collection, like 2,000 titles or something, and I'm running out of space. Space is the premium for me. <laughs> I'm moving house. So I'm going to have less space in this new house as well. So what I've been doing to cull the collection without actually culling the collection is say I've got the Jason Bourne quadrilogy or whatever, the three tril- the, tril- the original trilogy plus Legacy. I haven't even seen Jason Bourne, the new one that came out like five years ago now, but I've got those four. What I did was... I get, I open them all up, I get all the discs out, and then I've got like little plastic sleeves or little paper envelopes, disc envelopes, I put them in, maybe a couple in a sleeve or whatever, I take all the uh, printed covers out, and I put them all inside one. So like when you open it up, you put them all in the plastic sleeve together, and then I put all the discs in one box, I took it down, so you take a set down from like four boxes down to one singular DVD box. See, this is the kind of stuff 
mm-hmm. why the fire of DVD culture will be a roaring. Yeah. To keep your shelf space at a premium, I'm very lucky. The uh, Blu-ray Studios is where Alexi's coming from. One Heat Minute Studios is where I'm coming mm-hmm. from. And the One Heat Minute shelves... And it, it is an ongoing saga of like movement, adjusting yep. motion around to get things going, and and I'm and I'm and I'm at, in a good position because I can still make more space. But I will yep. definitely take your note of like eventually when books and Blu-rays start to like you know go through the walls, I'm going to have to figure out how yep. to how to suspend things from the roof. Yes. I think it's going to be that it's going to be that uh, crazy in here. It is tough, but let me tell you this: I've thrown away a hundred boxes, like just the plastic yeah. Blu-ray cases, just the plastic 4K UHD cases. I've chucked them all away because trilogies, quadrilogies, whole sagas are getting put down into one box. Reboots, ne- remakes—they're all in the same thing. The Hustler, Color of Money, yeah, it's in one box now. Okay, dude. <laughs> what I was going to say is the great Garth Franklin got me onto this, and I've been trying to find them. And I think there's a few DVD culture folk like us that are mm. out there that have already done this. There are these beautiful uh, leather bands. You can find them now. They're pretty expensive, but yeah. they, they do come around on special now and then. They're they're very tall, what look like books, leather-bound books on your shelves. And on Mr. Garth Franklin's shelves, he's got like a whole stack alphabetized. They've just got ABC all the way, like 26 mm. of them. And you open them and what was his entire original DVD collection that he has not yet upgraded is all there in its pristine form, like yeah. in those things. And they actually have spaces. I think it's like two or three discs um, per page. And it's like the space for the actual, the the outer cover. The so paper. you can keep the cover and the disc. Wow. And so I, I'm like trying to keep an eye out for that because that that is actually going to eliminate my mm. basically entire remaining DVD shelf. I'm yeah. putting them in those big books and getting them on the bookshelves to to make more Blu-ray space in, yeah. this, uh, in this thing. But look, let's dive into it. That, that I think that's the perfect digression that leads I us back so. to Hammer. I think so. I think it does. So the first one I'm going to cover is spine number number 50. It is... Countess Dracula. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the ugliest of them all? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Devil woman. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the most terrifying of them all? The Countess Dracula. So it's the 17th century. There's an elderly widow. She's living at her house. She's just basically uh, in the process of grieving. She has, uh, you know, he has a faithful servant who's kind of like her age, age appropriate, who's been in love with her for many years and is like, look, I think now once your mourning period ends, we should just get married (laughs) and, and we'll just live our lives out happily ever after. She invites her daughter back from the city to come home. And look, in the freak process of... Uh, an an accident that happens with an overheated bath from her handmaiden. Uh, She accidentally slices her virginal handmaiden's face. Oh my word. And that, and that blood splatters on the countess and it reveals that the blood of a virgin will restore her youth. Oh my words. That's the secret, huh? That's the secret. And so again, I think, look, the Illuminati have been big fans of Countess Dracula for many mm-hmm. years. Um, we can say that unequivocally. It stars Ingrid Pitt, Nigel Green, Sandor Eels, and uh, it's it is just that's the take on this Dracula thing. It's about it's a it's a, a Dracula take, uh, a throwback period Dracula take, but it is more about vanity, and mm. which is why I think it actually kind of rips. Has an incredible set of special features. Is 
beautiful and blistering. The challenge, though, I'm just going to say this for all of the hammer set that I've seen so far, they shoot cheap and nasty. So even the highest definition scans on their original film stocks, a lot of these hammer films don't maybe have the pristine quality of a Hollywood film. Yes. Maybe you don't have the pristine quality of some of the transfer we've seen so far, but nonetheless, um, I think it actually lends to what I, I think you and I talked about before we started recording was just like hammer has this amazing thing where they took very dynamic contemporary film style. Mm. And even in the staging, even in the action direction, and they just implanted that style back with period shooting. So it's very economical. It's almost like indie film cinema, but everyone's in period dresses and it's all these opulent staging and things like that. So I had a lot of fun with Countess Dracula. This release is stacked with old mm. and new docos and, um, uh, you know, a great Cat Ellinger essay, which is my tip of the litter, a pick of the litter rather. Yeah, yeah. Called Vampire Lover, The Life and Career of Ingrid Pitt. Um, it's it's absolutely stacked. This one was a fun one, Alexi. A really fun one. I love to hear that. So that's a really fun one. Um, if you're into your Dracula riffs, mm. it's a cool one because I think Dracula, like Frankenstein, and we'll, we, we're going to definitely talk touch on this later on when we talk about movie monsters just in general, but Dracula and Frankenstein riffs are always fun um, at this time because it's at the same time that like Westerns were going through their revisionist time in like Hollywood, Hammer is like, you know, it's, yeah. it's going revisionist, but it's going revisionist with universal movie monsters. And Absolutely. whether you like them... Or not, that's a different question, but I really liked this little riff oh, um, I think on, that's on the, Dracula. The best I've ever heard of Put Blake, that they are doing what revisionist westerns did for golden era westerns that to, uh, I don't know how to say it better than you, because uh, you just said it really well, <laughs> and I'm just fumbled. But they're doing the revisionists of the Universal Monster movies. And I think that's something that's always stuck in my head. I've never been able to vocalize it as good as that, and still <laughs> have not been able to vocalize it as good as that. But I think that's something that's always stayed with me, and it's always been a bit of my my fascination with Hammer, and maybe what has been my arm's length with Hammer as well. Yeah, I, I I definitely think that. I think that Hammer has, um, just by definition, and I think that they were, you know, they were scared of the quite litigious mm. American studios, you know, that if they went too close to these original mythic tales that they were going to get done. So the way that they, you know, their modus operandi is like revising it and, and, and you know, changing the myth with stuff that was already kind of, um, uh, you know, free in the free domain basically and so yeah i I, th I i kind of like these ones and but the next one which is in print spine number 51 is actually the one i was looking forward to most because anyone who's listening now to one mm -hmm. in productions knows that one of our flagship shows is zodiac chronicle so zodiac as a entity in the real world it's it's most i guess uh corollary analog figure in history is Jack the Ripper. Yeah. So when I saw Hands of the Ripper in this box set, I sh quickly shot my arm up and called dibs and said, no, I definitely have to see Hands of the Ripper. Mm. A dreadful fear descended over the streets of London. No one who saw that face lived, except one small child whom he spared because she was his own flesh and blood. There was another murder. They're looking for Jack the Ripper. It's you. Hands of the Ripper, for those who are uninitiated, basically uh, hypothesizes that the original Jack the Ripper had a maiden, 
had a, a wife, a family, and a young daughter. And at the time, at the exact moment that his daughter, uh, sorry, at, at the time that his wife found out that he was Jack the Ripper, he murdered her in front of his daughter. Mm. And in that moment, that traumatic memory uh, fused him kind of supernaturally oh. to his young daughter. So she grows up for the rest of her life. She's sort of orphaned because he runs off and escapes and dies mysteriously. And she's orphaned. But whenever these moments trigger her and they're not sure how it happens, she's this young girl who's like gets triggered and then commits bloody murders. And she's discovered by this sort of wealthy, well-to-do sort of uh, uh, doctor and, and theorist. And he's like, he wants to figure out how that happens with her what what is going on okay. how can he how can he save her and let me tell you alexi he can't save her <laughs> he doesn't do a very good job in fact he invites her into his home and causes wow. all sorts of chaos it is a very cool kind of riff on that supernatural ripper thing and i just really liked it be- uh, particularly because um it, it kind of, in this weird way, started dealing with like psychological trauma mm. and that kind of messy thing that happens with like, what you know, do the sins, you know, and also that sort of primordial thing of like, do the sins of the parents like imprint yes. themselves, you know, forgive the pun, but imprint themselves on the, on the children. <laughs> so I kind of had a good time with this one. And yeah. also just the, I love, I love horror characters mm. who think they can save incredibly dangerous monstrous figures yes and like like it's like taming a wild beast and it's almost like that feeling that you got when you started watching grizzly man where you're like this guy cannot tame grizzly bears Mm. one of them is going to eventually eat him oh wow and you're literally waiting every minute for it and so that's what i felt when i was watching this was you know, this this small girl who's been, you know, who's been tainted with this like evil spirit of Jack the Ripper, the more that you invite her into your home and around, the, the more likely that her unpredictability is going to cause death for someone that you love. So it's actually a cool little movie. I Out of the wow. two, both Countess Dracula and Hands of the Ripper, both made in 71, I had a lot more fun with Hands of the Ripper because I did like the Jack, uh, Jack the Ripper mythology, but I also like some of those other things. And I just, again, like I said, I love... I love those figures with hubris that feel like they're going to conquer something and Oof. they just have no chance. You sold me, dude. This, sound, this <laughs> sounds very interesting and very exciting. And I love that Blake take that I got on it. <laughs> now, my friend, speaking of uh, excitement and thrills, uh, please talk to me about The Twins of Evil. Not our nickname, but in <laughs> fact, a film from 1972 made by Hammer Studios. In old Gothic Europe, They had two burning passions, witch hunting and devil worship. Practice the black arts. They worship the devil. They're all slaves to Count Karnstein and he is their evil master. Do you know what I want more than anything else? To meet Count Karnstein. Yeah, I picked this one in the draw because... Like I kind of hinted at before, Universal Monsters, 
is part of my DNA. The Universal Monsters, all the mm. way from the original Dracula and Frankenstein. Bride of Frankenstein, one of my top 10 favorite films of all time. I adore Amazing. the Wolfman. I love the creature from the Black Lagoon. And I love the Invisible Man. I love the entire Universal Monsters range. Like, it's very near and dear to my heart. And I love, like, the campness of those movies. And I love, like, the elegance of those movies. And while I've always liked hammer and i've always tried very hard with hannah because with hammer because you know i'm a horror guy i love my horror films you got to keep your all your influences of horror pretty broad and bring them all in and i love seeing the different versions of the tales and stuff as as they're spun by different uh groups and different artists I've always had Hammer a little bit at arm's length. Like, there are certain entries that I absolutely adore. I love the history of the studio as a whole, which is something I guess we'll talk a little bit more about in the documentary portion at the end. But I just have never connected with them quite as much as I do with the Universal movies. And I picked Twins of Evil because, to me, it seemed the most emblematic of what Hammer is in those big, broad strokes and those cultural touchstones. It stars Peter Cushing um, in it, who is, uh, of course, one of the, Legend. the legends of Hammer. Legend. He is, I believe, a freaking uh, Van Helsing of the Hammer universe. <laughs> but yes. also, um, you know, we know him from as Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars and stuff like that. Governor Tarkin, I should have expected to find you holding Vader's leash. I recognized your foul stench when I was brought on board. Charming to the last. So he's an absolute legend. I love everything he represents. I love his camp energy as well. And I think that I picked this one because he's the lead. I'm like, got to go go there. Also, this is the third in the Karnstein trilogy, which is an iconic Hammer trilogy, like an iconic trilogy from Hammer that is vampirism. It's all about yes. vampires. And for them, it's kind of like just after Dracula, there's Karnstein when it comes to Hammer. And I'd never seen any of those before. They all have an em element of like lesbian vampire love as part of it. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I know that going in. I got to get a little bit of that from this. And also it has an interesting thing in it where there is uh, the twins of evil are real life identical twins and former Playboy playmates, Mary and Madeline Collinson. So I was oh, like, this my God. gets all the sleaze of Hammer as well. So I really threw myself in the deep end. And I got to say, it is. this was not my favorite. I feel yeah. like I will give this one a second chance, though, because, you know, for me, getting into Hammer is still always a lifelong journey because there's ones that I adore, but there's some that I've got to give another chance to. And I feel like this is one of them. Cause Alexa, you have, you've sold the perfect appetite for me to watch this movie. Mm. And what is insane is there's a whole two-hour director's cut feature-length doco about this Kahnstein trilogy, which yeah. I've never heard of and I'm fascinated by, that's also on this disc. Yeah, that's why this disc is like loaded. And it's kind of like, for me, that's important. I'm like, okay, this is yeah. part of my journey as a horror fan is to get deeper involved with Hammer. And I think this mm. one represents a lot. It's interesting. It's slow. Um, I think part for me is like Hammer 
I have to watch it in the middle of the day because they almost feel like a daytime movie that I would watch when I was sick um, or something like <laughs> yeah. that on a weekend or whatever. I'm just home alone on a weekend as a kid and I don't know what else is on. So I just watch, whatever, watch, watch whatever's on TV and you've got like this weird period piece. It's slow. It's kind of weird. It's like awkwardly sexy. <laughs> and I got to tell you, another reason that I picked this one, directed by John Ho- John Hoff, John Hoff, who is like a Hoff. bit of a uh, hammer legend. And I, he directed a movie that I really, really love called uh, The Watcher in the Woods, which is a Disney live action uh, children's oh. horror movie starring Betty Davis. And um, I love like kids horror films. Like that's to me is like a real oh, gateway. Wh- like it's... We were, we were just talking about the other day and I've just now... <laughs> bought it we'll probably eventually talk about it on a, a serious disagreement our companion show it's the imprint companion which is paranormal mm. which i just think is one of the most beautiful like and, and all the stuff with Leica studios that did Coraline, which is adapted from neil gaiman's book but paranormal is this original mm. fable about you know tolerance and, yeah. and, and that is just so completely like a, a tapestry of the greatest horror movies that have ever made. Yeah, it's masterpiece. just glorious. It's glorious. got Jeff Garland, my favorite comedian of all time, as well, oh, as the dad. So I love that movie. Um, <laughs> but th- so children's horror is like a real gateway for me. Like I find it fascinating, and I wish there were more entries in it. The Watcher in the Woods is a real good one, and I hope it gets to Disney Plus one day. Um, and I'll talk about another one later on. I was hoping it was on Disney Plus because yeah. yeah, I've never seen that one and it looks great. I'm I'm very keen. But there's just something about these movies that I find a little hard to become fully engaged with them. Maybe I would yes. need to inoculate myself more by watching the previous two entries in the Karnstein trilogy or just watching that documentary first might have helped me more. But it's yes. an entire education. You know, this box set goes back to what got me into collecting physical media in the first place. It is film school and film history in a box. And yes. I think that, you know, Hammer horror is part of the history of horror. It's a huge part of it. And, you know, it's part of getting further along, part of learning more. Um, So that's Twins of Evil. I barely talked about the movie, but it's as much (laughs) Hammer as you can get. And the cinematographer is the legendary Dick Bush, one of the funniest names that a cinematographer (laughs) has ever gotten. And he's done some big movies. He's done some big ones. Most uh, notably, I would say he did Tommy. Um, the uh, ah. Who movie, the, the rock opera or whatever you call it, and yes. an awesome movie that I've got on physical media as well called Phase 4, which is the only feature film directed by Saul Bass. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Dick Bush. We love Dick. We love Bush. We love Dick Bush. We do uh, indeed. Now, the final in this, well, it's kind of like a double double whammy of a finale because it also includes the the Hammer Heritage of Horror documentary, Flesh and Blood. What is the final film, the final imprint, Spy Number 53, that we are covering today? Uh, this is a movie called Vampire Circus. We invite you to go through the mirror of life. great name and i picked this one because it i can't i have love a circus comes to town movie there's something about that 
Love that too. And especially in the realm of horror, it is just something I really, really love. And I love it even more when it is as freaking totally kooky as the titular vampire circus is in this movie. It never quite reaches the heights of, for me, the ultimate circus comes to town horror movie which is something wicked this way comes which is another live action disney horror film which i hope makes its way to disney plus one day um and that (laughs) stars the legendary jason robots oh my goodness great movie see this this podcast is a film history and an education for me i haven't seen that another disney one i missed out on a disney horror film oh my goodness but when they still like dabbled in such a thing. <laughs> exactly. So this one is set in like the 19th century in a Serbian village. No one has a Serbian accent. Um, but it's that kind of classic like kooky hammer kind of vibe where it is almost feels like a play at some points where you've got that kind of classical staging. And just I think the way that Blake really described them as revisionist uh, using modern technique and modern cameras to tell stories that would have been told at the early golden age of cinema as well. Um, I think it really fits in with that that weird mix of contradictions that seems to be that hammer modus operandi, where it's inventive, yet it's cliched, it's kinky, yet it's boring, it's grotesque, yet it's sexy, (laughs) and it's gory, yet it's also incredibly tame for some way. Uh, So... Yeah, I think that this one is kind of worth watching as well because it's interesting. I had a lot more fun with this one just because it was so weird that there's kind of like this plague going on in this movie and this traveling circus comes around and the traveling circus are all vampires and are all mystics and stuff. And so they're kind of like pulling one over on this town and... That's just that's a genre that I love. Just everything I described then, that circus comes to town shit, when it's like that period setting and it's like all this mysticism, this traveling roadshow of misfits that don't quite belong in that world and also don't quite belong in the world of human nature. There's something supernatural about them, something beyond our understanding. That's exciting. That's interesting. And it's also the directorial debut of Robert Young, who would go on to be an iconic uh, comedic director in England. He would do stuff like Jeeves and Wooster. And um, he was, he directed part of um, uh, the follow-up to A Fish Called Wanda called uh, Fierce Creatures before Fred Shepsey came on and took over. And then he did another python-esque thing with Cleese and Eric Idle called Splitting Airs, which I'll never forget because it's Rick Moranis and those guys. And um, the DVD store that I worked at somehow thought this movie from 1993 was a new release because there was like a new DVD coming out. And they were like, the owner was like, oh my God, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Rick Moranis, this is huge. And got like 40 copies of it. And it's like only rented three times because like no one would give a shit about it. (laughs) (laughs) It was from 1993. Who cares? Who cares? (laughs) He just thought it was somehow there was a new release with like these huge comedy stars coming out. They're like, dude, IMDb, sort it out. Like, come on, that sounds great. I, I, you just nailed something so spot on. There is nothing more kind of malevolent than this like beacon for children and happiness Mm. that is ultimately setting you up for like. 
fear and capture and torment and like weirdness. And I think circuses are just like, they're just yeah. right in that wheelhouse, you know, like it's, you know, there's, there's no, there's, there's, it's no accident that like the whole Pennywise, the clown is one mm. of the most enduring horror characters because it's just, it's freaking creepy. Um, uh, clowns could be joyful and silly and slapstick and nonsense, mm. or they can be in a sewer, um, being super, super creepy. Um, let's, let's wrap this bad boy up, um, with talking the flesh and blood, the hammer heritage horror documentary, because, you know, I think one of the things that you learn with hammer is just, it is, it's just sort of like relentless innovation and, and just having a crack and the, like, I think when you're this prolific and this kind of, you know, the, you know, diving into the void of like British um, content requiring, mm. you know, a certain content quota is going to just create a, a massive, massive amount of content, but also not a lot of it is fantastic. But I just, I think this is such a fascinating documentary to look back and just see how many people got their start mm. in this extremely lo-fi indie churning studio where people started out just like not even knowing what the hell they were doing and then eventually became this machine that became sort of iconic and and just on pure I don't know just like pure production power became this and, and branding essentially became like one of the biggest studios in the world for a time and truly iconic studio like they're, they're yeah. unarguably one of the more iconic studios in sub-genres and genre cinema. And I think it's because they have such a signature stamp. And they really, like you said, they did some big swings. They hit some stuff all over the place. Like even stuff like, you know, the Rasputin movie with uh, Christopher yeah. Lee. Like that is kind of iconic because That's a swing. it's an iconic it's a actor sw- playing an iconic real-life figure. They just made a movie for it. It made sense to do it. And, you know... Not the best movie of all time, but it certainly no. exists and it certainly is deeply beloved. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think one of the things that's heartening for us as film fans, you as a filmmaker, me as a producer of creative things, is you just look at them and you go, what they did was really just have massive swings. Mm. Like they just never let limited funding or, or like something that was too big um, a potentially like a special effect or, or a makeup requirement or a set, they just found innovative ways to do things. Like, for example, you know, Hammer Studios was essentially this huge, what well, started out as like a crappy manor house on the Thames mm. in England and then eventually became this big, glorious, opulent space that they, uh, and now a monstrous manor house that they just shot countless period films in and and would set up like courtyards and things like that for, for some of their films where there was like a, a, um, a mystery where they went to hunt like a, the abominable, abominable snowman. Mm. They set up the outside of the of of, a, of the house. They covered it in snow. They shot there for the exteriors for the, the sort of um, mountainside village, and then they went into the mountains for like ten days and did the rest of the pickup shots of all of the wilderness, and then came back to this set. And it's like that is just extremely innovative and and so fast paced. Like some of the spaces didn't even allow their whole crew to be in the rooms. They had you know, boom mic operators standing mm. outside covered in tarps while it's raining. Um, it's just a, a kind of impressive, you know, lo-fi, you know, uh, little rascals almost starting yeah. out point that then boomed into this huge iconic thing. And I, I genuinely think as they made more films, they all got collectively better at what it was and then lent into the weirdness and their sort of very unique kind of weird camp, partially grotesque sort of tone. They Mm. found their true tone and just got better at doing it over and over again. Yeah. And that is all chronicled in that documentary flesh and blood. 
Yeah, which definitely. And worth worth the price of admission too. It's a fifth film. Again, another feature-length mm. doco. You've now got, like, I think there's two um, feature-length docos that are in here as well um, uh, on on uh, multiple discs for you yeah. to cover uh, some of these films. It's pretty pretty impressive. I didn't get a chance to catch up with this film, but I have seen it probably like 10 years ago. Um, and it is something I own on DVD because it was a, <laughs> it was actually a relic that I saved from when the video store I worked at as a teenager was closing down. And it stayed with oh. me all this time because I'm, I, I have a very fond, I have a, such a fondness for this studio, uh, it, its existence. And I'm always like, I will revisit that. And I've got this companion. It comes with a little booklet. It comes with a booklet in there, which is another reason I've saved it because it's a bit of a gourmet dish. But I've also got like this extra large like hammer hardcover coffee table book that has so many great like props and like pictures of those things. So glorious! I, I, it's something that like while I say the Universal movies are really important to me, Hammer has always been that temptress that I've never quite gotten a grasp of, but I always have that connection to you know. Yeah, I I I. I really like Hammer and I, I'm not sure if I've said it so far. I definitely, we've talked about it, but it's like, I look at Hammer and I think that kind of taking period texts and, and, and transplanting new, um, new filmmaking styles on top of the period text is really just, it's their, it's their answer to the West. Mm -hmm. You saw Chris Nolan, like his most Hammer movie is the prestige, yeah. you when know, and I think he was let, he was lauded by it for, by it for that, and I, I just I looked at these films, mm. and and again both of actually funnily enough, um both features that I covered tonight, um both uh, Countess Dracula and Hands of the Ripper are both directed by Peter Sadzi, mm. um in in the same in the same um in in the same year. Busy boy. And so he, busy boy and uh um, overachiever um <laughs> and uh and you know so he he does both of these, and I I just feel like their influence again one of the one of the benefits you have is um especially when they curate like this almost like horror through the ages mm. release section um you get to sort of see some classic you know some sort of in the classic mode but bees those you know the those discovering uh, uh, gems we're going to find for silver screams um obviously hammer horror themselves like getting a nice little slice of those and then coming into what we see with uh you know brotherhood of satan all the way up to the dead zone is like these kind of these really influential and impactful horror films and some of the ones that are in their class but maybe didn't quite have the same splash, you know? It's it's really fascinating. Check it out. Yeah. It's a great box set. It is film school in a box. It is film history in a box. And I think that you'll get something out of it. I'm really glad that I've got my hands on this one and I look forward to delving deeper and banging that hammer. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Blake Howard, host and producer of One Heat Minute Productions podcast. We dive into the great and underappreciated cinematic works, often one minute or one scene at a time. Our crew of guests are some of the most wonderful filmmakers, writers, authors, and critics ever assembled. Our shows include One Heat Minute, Josie and the Podcats, All the President's Minutes, Increment Vice, and right now, Zodiac Chronicle. Check out oneheatminute.com or find us wherever you get your podcasts.